So this morning we woke up to news of the passing of Dame Hilary Mantel yesterday in England. And she's obviously best known for the Wolf Hall series of novels, but her body of work is really impressive. She sat down with us for a conversation uh, back in 2020 for the publication of The Mirror and the Light, which is the third volume of the Wolf Hall series. And uh, we're republishing it here and we hope you'll take a listen. Thanks. This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Once the queen's head is severed, he walks away. It's a fabulous opening line, that first line of The Mirror and the Light, the final volume in Hilary Mantel's stunning Wolf Hall trilogy. Anne Boleyn is dead and Thomas Cromwell, that brilliant self-made man, Lord Privy Seal, fixer and enforcer, the man who drove the English Reformation, continues his ascent. And his fall, when it comes, is brutal. You may have heard at least part of the story behind the story. Hilary Mantel thought about Thomas Cromwell for 30 years before she started work on Wolf Hall in 2005. What she thought would be a single book became two. Bring Up the Bodies arrived in 2012, two years earlier than expected because she realized 400 pages in that she needed a third volume to tell the story of Thomas Cromwell as it needed to be done. Both Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies won the booker. Hilary Mantel is the only woman to have won the prize twice. And she joins us today in studio by phone. Hilary, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. It's a treat for me. So historical record tells us that Thomas Cromwell died in 1540. So does this mean you're done with Cromwell? No, unfortunately, you know, this man has a Mm -hmm. sneaky habit of putting his head back on, Uh getting up again and restarting. And what I'm doing now is I'm working on a stage play. Oh, excellent. So, for me, there's been no break. Uh He is immediately in progress again. Uh And then after that, we'll follow the TV series Uh where I'm not writer, but I will be in the wings there. I'll be consulted. I'll be looking at the scripts talking with the director and so on. So frankly, it's going to be years before that man's out of my life. Not that I regret that, because I feel there's more to know. I I don't feel as yet I can add this individual up. And I still feel very much in the process of the book. Mm -hmm. I think I made a shrewd pick. Mm-hmm. when I chose this character. Because the last thing you want is to be able to say, I understand everything about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a character with a lot of ambiguity. And I think some of that was calculated ambiguity. And some of it is probably caused by the fact that the historical record is erased in one way or another. But there's plenty of scope for creative conjecture with Cromwell. Mm-hmm. And as you roll the story over into different media, then you can take opportunities that you can't take on the page. Like what? Well, it's a question often of surprise. Mm-hmm. very hard for a writer to really spring a surprise in the page. 
uh, whereas the camera does that so instantly. With the theatre, there's the intimacy, the directness of the dress. And, of course, a writer of fiction, frustratingly, she can only write one line at once. (laughs) (laughs) But the camera, or the audience, can keep their eyes on the characters moving in the background. Mm -hmm. You know, in any defined space, your room, your garden, whatever. Uh, The author knows what all the other characters are doing, but she can't convey that all in one line to the reader. But sometimes what those other characters are doing is very telling, and whether they're in your main character's line of sight or not, Mm -hmm. And in the theatre and on film, you have a chance to to cast your eye on all those other mm-hmm. characters. And I think just generally, um, for every author, if you whatever book you're writing, as you, you you go along, you you sometimes think, I can't quite do this, but mm-hmm. it would work brilliantly if it were a film. <laughs> or if it were a play. And one thing I've learned as I've moved on in my career is to keep your eye on the opportunities offered by these other media so that you're always thinking plurally. Not that you're fixing your novel Mm -hmm. so that it can be a play or a film. But I think knowing a little bit about these other media, it just powers you up as a writer. Mm-hmm. It's as if you've got more tools at your disposal. I think that's definitely true. You also really changed the way that we read and experience historical fiction, though. I mean, Wolf Hall was a revelation in 2009. Suddenly we were in the present tense, and suddenly the language wasn't sort of interfering with the way we were reading and experiencing the story. I mean, we all... I think, have a great appreciation for the way you restructured, the way you layered detail after detail after detail. And you've said this is all based on research, that you've got entire scenes that actually the level of detail that you have comes from ambassadors' letters or other letters from members at court. Yes, I I think really the viewpoint is everything in, in these books, that you are almost inside Cromwell. You're... Mm-hmm. You're looking through his eyes, and it gives a kind of visceral, direct, present tense quality to the the writing because we're never running ahead of his experience, mm-hmm. or um, we're never lagging behind it either. We're always in the present moment. That means there are things he doesn't know mm-hmm. that the reader may guess at. Um, and what he, what he mainly doesn't know, like every person who's ever lived, he doesn't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes. Mm-hmm. The reader, though, has a better idea. And I think in that gap between what the reader knows and what Cromwell knows grows a very particular kind of expense uh, of, uh, I'm sorry, a very particular kind of expectation Mm -hmm. because the reader gets to know Cromwell really well and wants to know how he will react 
when history begins to overtake him. And I think the fact that we do know the end, it, it's not really a disadvantage. It can be turned to the advantage of the book because you build a sense of dread. And I have to say it's a really elegant ending. And that's all I'll say because I want people to experience it as I got to experience it. But the way you take the reader through that last few chapters, it's, a, it's just, it's a perfect ending for the character. I mean, beyond the historical record, beyond the fact that we know he dies, the way you set it up and the Cromwell that we see in those moments is really spectacular. He was a busy man in the Tower of London. The king asked him, in effect, to do the paperwork that would set him up Mm -hmm. to get him out of his fourth marriage. And so until the very end, I think, time was full. But then you have these last few days where you're free to imagine what Mm -hmm. might have been going on with him. And I have to say that I started imagining those last few days right at the beginning of the project. So Mm -hmm. I'm going back 15 years now. Mm -hmm. So it was very much a book in which the ending arrived as soon as the beginning arrived. You begin the books with a teenage boy lying flat on the cobbles of a yard and a man standing over him and the boy can see his own blood. Mm-hmm. And he thinks, I've got um, a few seconds to live. And that's where we get to at the very end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um the scaffold, Mm -hmm. the blood, Mm -hmm. the voices in the air, except that 40 years have passed, Mm -hmm. and and 40 really, packed in tumultuous years, and the reader has been along for a lot of that ride with Thomas Cromwell. So I, I had to... I had the opportunity to rehearse the end, if you like. Mm -hmm. And I've made many, many drafts before I actually got to to writing the final chapter. Because I work in a very collage-like fashion. Uh, At any point, I could write something for any point in the project. Or at least write an outline, Mm -hmm. even if I didn't have all the facts. But then, of course, there came a point about three years back where I just had to go and sit down at my desk and very systematically put it all into order and write the book from the beginning. But my my engagement with the end of the project uh, goes back, I suppose, right back to when I, I began writing around 2005. Mm-hmm. Did you know, you've said in the past that from that first page of Wolf Hall, you knew, you knew you had the story, you knew. But did you also know then that you had Cromwell's voice and that you had his interior life? Or was it really that you had the start of the story? I had the whole thing from the first sentence Mm -hmm. because the setup is as I described. Mm -hmm. And what the character could see was 
in intense close-up. Mm-hmm. Um, he could see his blood, and he could see his father's boot, mm-hmm. and he could see the stitching mm-hmm. in the boot. Mm-hmm. So having written those few sentences, I had to take a breath and ask myself, where am I? Mm-hmm. And the answer was, I'm behind Thomas Cromwell's eyes. Right. And the next question is, when is this? And the answer, it is now. Mm-hmm. So two big decisions were taken right away on viewpoint and on the tense I was going to use. It commanded the present tense because it was unfolding like film script. And so I think after that, I, I had taken the essential decisions because I think with historical fiction, everything's a matter of tone mm-hmm. and you have to set that tone on the first page. With this book, it seemed to command its tone. I was not conscious of making choices. I was only conscious of that voice in my head of uh, Cromwell's father who was mm-hmm. saying, so now get up, so now get up. Mm-hmm. And I knew that 40 years on, when he's dying, he'd be hearing that voice. Cromwell was Henry's uh, King Henry's right hand for 10 years. So he's behind the scenes. Well, he's behind the scenes, but he's also standing literally next to the king. Henry's right-hand man for 10 years. He's the smartest guy in the room. He's the king's right-hand man. He's three steps ahead of anyone else at any given time. And yet, there are moments in this book, there are moments in the mirror in the light, where Cromwell realizes that suddenly he's the one fighting the invisible enemy when he had been the invisible enemy. I think he must always have known Mm -hmm. the great weakness of his position. Mm -hmm. That, as one of the characters says, everything depends on the next beat of the king's heart. Cromwell's power isn't written into the structure Mm -hmm. or into the hierarchy. It's all the power given to him by the king. So he's not in the same position as one of the great lords of the realm who commands his own territories and his own tenants and can raise a private army. That's not Cromwell's position. Uh, He's a politician. He's a courtier. Everything depends on Henry's favor. So everything comes down to his personal relationship with the king. Plus the network of relations Mm -hmm. he can build with other people, the favors he can offer them, uh, the um, encouragements or the bribes he can offer them. But there's always a huge constellation of forces ranged against him. Mm -hmm. And those aren't just uh, the old nobility. It's also the common people. Right. Because to our mind, in the 21st century, they ought to like Thomas Cromwell because that's what he is. He's a common man. But actually, the opposite is true, and this is where they're so different from us because people think God's design is that you should be ruled by noblemen. Mm -hmm. 
And so they don't welcome Thomas Cromwell's rise to power. Quite the opposite. They think there's something wicked and unnatural about it. Point so that, oh, it has no natural following or affinity. Uh, he has to rely very much on what what he can build day by day and what he can hold together in the teeth of opposition. And I, I think to that extent, he would always have envisaged, this is going to end badly. And yet, he engages, mm-hmm. uh, like all the courtiers, life at court may be dangerous, but what's life away from court? It's just a waste of pointless boredom. That's their attitude. If you want to get on, you have to be at the court. You have to engage with this king. And so the stakes are very high in the 16th century. As a minister, if you make a mistake, you're likely to pay with your life. And if your enemies get the upper hand... They can sweep you out of the way in a matter of days. You're not going to be locked away for several years while your case is investigated. They're going to move very fast, and in the end, that's what happens to Cromwell. It's a sign of his his power, too, when the Northern Rebellion happens, and suddenly there are rumors that the king has died and Cromwell is, in fact, ruling the country. And then those rumors turn into, well, Cromwell would like to marry the Lady Mary, or he would like to marry the king's niece, and he would like to make himself a successor to the king. These um, are very dangerous to him, Mm -hmm. obviously. The one thing that would most outrage Henry is the idea of anyone else scheming to take over his throne that Mm -hmm. would enrage any king and it's hard to know at this distance whether some of these rumours that take over England are are actively planted if if they arise in some spontaneous way or if they are implanted by Cromwell's enemies but Mm -hmm. gossip is always a mystery In this case, it's lethal gossip, of course. But these rumors are circulated all over Europe. And the idea that Cromwell was plotting to marry the king's daughter was actually in circulation for a number of years. But it's as if Henry decided never to hear this rumor Mm -hmm. until he did decide to hear it when... He'd already decided to move against Cromwell. Mm. Or whether it was Cromwell's enemies who said to Henry, wake up, you know what's going on. He's plotting to take over your throne. And they pushed him into action. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when Cromwell was arrested, he must have thought... Let me get to the king, because I'll make him change his mind. Because Henry was volatile. Right. But of course, as everyone knew that, the last thing they were going to allow was a personal meeting between 
Cromwell and Henry. Mm-hmm. It's frightening how personal the face of power is in those days. Mm-hmm. So that when all the politics are stripped away, what you have in the Miranda light is the crucial relationship between the king and his minister. Part of Cromwell's brilliance and his rise to power also comes with his relationships with women at court. He's very good at maintaining whatever relationship he needs to collect information. So there are two points in the story. He has two interactions. There's Cardinal Wolsey's daughter, and then there's a moment with Bess Seymour, the woman who becomes his son's wife. Where he misreads a situation so wildly, and these are two separate occurrences with two separate women, but Cromwell actually misreads the situation, and the shock that he registers was actually shocking for me, because of all of the people in the world, given everything that I knew about this character over all of these books, and here are two massive moments where he has misread what's in front of him. How did it feel for you to write those scenes? Well, I I think right at the beginning of Wolf Hall, mm-hmm. Cromwell makes a very conscious decision to take on board the women's world. He, he says, women imagine what it's like to be each other, and one can learn from that. And it's as if he suddenly understands what empathy is, Mm-hmm. And he weaponizes it. And he uses it not only in his interactions with um, with women, but with men as well, because he says, you know, a lot of the time, you don't have to force people into doing things. You just have to find out what they want. Mm-hmm. And it's often very easy to give it to them. And it eases and speeds the process all around. So he has a way of working people, manipulating people, Mm -hmm. if you like. And he understands that at court, there is a kind of inner court which consists of the women, of what they talk about and the information they exchange uh, um, amongst themselves. He wants to tap into this, and he does. But there are, as you say, the moments when he's wrong-footed, and these, of course, are fictional episodes. Mm-hmm. Wolsey's daughter, Dorothy, is a real person, mm-hmm. and she really was a young nun in the convent at Shaftesbury. And letters about her and about what was to happen to her crossed Cromwell's desk. They're real letters. The visit to Shaftesbury, I make up, but mm-hmm. it's possible that it could have occurred. Uh, and he hasn't seen Dorothy since she was a child. And he goes to offer her a home, shelter, and she turns on him and she accuses him of betraying her father, Cardinal Wolsey, his beloved father figure. And he is absolutely shocked. He might perhaps of being able to rebut that accusation if it had come from another man. But as it comes from a young woman, 
on one so close to the cardinal, he simply can't cope with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's completely knocked off course, and it's the one time in the three books when he almost breaks down, uh, and he begins to talk quite, quite wildly um, about Woolsey and what he did for him. Uh, and he's just talking into the air. Mm-hmm. He's left Dorothea behind. He's come out of that room, and he, he yes, he's been, you know, nothing, nothing could have prepared him for this. However, with Elizabeth Seymour, the misunderstanding there, um, it is his fault, in Mm -hmm. a way, because Elizabeth, the widowed sister of Mm -hmm. Queen Jane Seymour, Mm -hmm. and Cromwell has set him, uh, has set her up to marry his son, Gregory. Mm -hmm. But Elizabeth thinks she's going to marry Thomas, and... The conversations Cromwell has had with Edward Seymour about it have been kind of caricature masculine conversations, which you can almost imagine people being in that mode today. But I think with with Tudor men talking about a marriage, it was all about when and how will we make this contractual relationship. Mm -hmm. It was about money, basically. It wasn't about love. And it wasn't about the feelings of the parties concerned, as long as they would consent. So I suppose this is me having some fun at the expense of the typical Tudor male, which Cromwell is. You know, he's trying very hard to understand the world of women, but I suppose the moral is that ultimately it remains a puzzle to him. There are dark areas there where he never becomes master. The women have a way of putting him in his place. The dead are real and have power over the living. That's a line I lifted from the New Yorker interview that you did in 2012, but it is really true for this book. It's true for the entire trilogy. nobody's ever really dead. Mm -hmm. Nothing's ever finished. All situations seem to be cyclical, so something buried in your far past will come around and get you, like what is embedded in Thomas's memory from when he was a boy of eight and he saw an old woman burned at the stake. And even though he's an expert at repression, mm-hmm. he's unable to keep away from this memory which invades him in a really dreadful and weakening way in the mirror and the light. And we're working within a worldview here where everyone is a religious believer and everyone believes in the next world as very close to them Mm -hmm. and very important, much more important than this world. So... Even at the time, it's such a subject of debate, you see, what happens when you die? Is there an immediate judgment, you go to heaven or hell? Or is there this awful waiting room called 
purgatory where you might stay for thousands and thousands of years. And this is one of the theological debates at the heart of the Reformation. Mm -hmm. But it strikes me that it's, okay, it is a philosophical question, a theological question, but if you've lost someone close to you, it's the most urgent question you know. Where are they now? Can they see me? Will I ever hear from them? again. And in this book, particularly, um, it's as if Cromwell carries inside him all those those people who have died, and he considers himself bound by promises to the dead, and he's made a promise to, to Catherine of Aragon, Henry's first wife, and he, he says, I, I promise to look after her daughter. Mm-hmm. I can't break the terms now, even though this is really risky for me politically. I might lose my own life, but I've got to somehow protect Mary because I can't call Catherine back and say to her, I want a bit of negotiation now on this promise. He says he has to keep it. So the the people who we met in Wolf Hall and bring up the body... A lot of them are dead, but they are not gone. And that seems like the perfect place to end. Hilary Mantel, the new novel is The Mirror and the Light. It is the third volume of the Wolf Hall trilogy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.